my name is Joshua Lingle, uh, back again, and we're continuing on with the biography of Muhammad, the life of Muhammad, and now we're uh, moving into the section on warfare, war with the Muslims and so on. As we can begin to see that the most prominent feature of Muhammad's time in Medina was warfare against non-Muslim enemies. The career of the prophet was an especially violent one. There was one where during the last nine years of his life, he's recorded as having participated in uh, 27 different battles with his Muslim soldiers and planned approximately 59 others. Dr. David Cook records as many as 80 or 84 different battles that he was involved in. And this is actually an extraordinary number. Uh, this means that Muhammad fought about nine battle campaigns every year. Now, many Muslims you speak with may declare that Islam is actually a religion of peace. So the question is, is it? To get to the heart of whether or not Islam is a religion of peace, we have to first make a distinction between the religion of Islam and the Muslim people. Uh, Islam is a set of fixed teachings which originated some 1,300 years ago. However, the Muslim people are as different as there are people in this world. So we can't characterize the people as the text. Each Muslim is different, and what they believe may be different too. There's 1.6 billion Muslims throughout the world today, many of whom are moderate or even nominal in their faith. Many are hardworking people, honorable citizens of their, the countries that they're, they're from, and they hold a strong family values. These individuals would uh, decry the horrific acts of the terrorists and extremists, uh, but the truth be told, most of them have never actually read the Quran or other sacred writings and Islamic teachings and so on, so they may not know what it really teaches. Um, if, if you look at uh, uh, pr uh, Professor Tony uh, Weider's class on folk Islam, he will discuss uh, many of these types of Muslims that may not be necessarily relying on the traditions, but the popular practices and expressions of that in their nations. Now, here's what the Quran uh, and Muhammad's revelation to mankind, or Allah's revelation to mankind, actually has to say about violence. In Surah, or chapter 9, ayah 5, it says, quote, Then fight them and slay the pagans wherever you find them, and seize them and beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. End quote. If we look at Surah 929, it says, Fight against those who believe not in the law, nor in the last day, nor forbid that which is forbidden by Allah and his messenger, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, Islam, among the people of the scriptures, the Jews, and the Christians. And then there's Surah 47, Ayah 4, and it says, So when you meet and fight in jihad in Allah's cause, those who disbelieve smite or strike off their necks, till you've killed and wounded many of them. So these are just a few examples of the 164 sword verses that they're so-called, all found within the Quran, revealed through Muhammad. Though there are many peaceful verses in the Quran, these verses have been replaced by the more violent ones. They've been abrogated. And this is because the violent verses were, were, were revealed to Muhammad after the peace verses, and so the peace verses have been abrogated, replaced theologically. We'll discuss more of this in detail when we study through the Quran. But for now, the violence is justified within Islam because of a very important doctrine called the Khilafah, or the Islamic State. 
The early Muslims believed that Allah, their God, wanted them to establish this khilafah over the whole world. And this is a Islamic theocratic state on the earth. Muslims say that, they, that Islam is a whole way of life. And so they try and control all the political structure, economic structures, culture, and so on throughout this whole belief system. And that's why the Ummah, or the Muslim community, was created. It was the beginning of the Khilafah, the Islamic State. Now, as Christians, we believe in a heavenly kingdom in which Jesus Christ came to establish. However, Islam teaches that Muslims will rule an earthly kingdom. Islam's to rule and reign as the predominant faith system and political system globally. Islam's intended to be that whole total way of life. And the Khilafah is an earthly kingdom established through earthly means of fighting with religious significance or jihad. Again, Muhammad participa uh, per personally participated in battles in his quest to establish the Khilafah. It's important to note that these battles were not uh, defensive, as many moderate Muslims will suggest. Most of them were unprovoked raiding campaigns, uh, three-quarters of them, according to Dr. David Cook. And Muhammad was a warrior prophet who gave his opponents the options to convert to Islam, to be reduced down to a second-class citizen or a demitude uh, under his rule, or he could be killed. The person could be killed. So those were their three options. And this is all documented within the Islamic traditions, which we'll discuss later on. The Battle of Badr was one of the most important battles uh, there his army uh, was vastly outnumbered by 300 Muslims to 1,000 Meccan pagans. And the Muslims won a, a decisive victory, revealing that Allah was prospering their cause. That battle, battle serves as inspiration for jihad fighters today, who believe that angels were there fighting alongside Muhammad and his warriors. Now, what actually took place in these battles? And this information can all be found in the most authoritative Islamic traditions. If you want to research themselves, you can read those genres uh, under uh, the Sirah, the biography, under Ibn Asak. You can read Al-Waqidi's uh, magazine, the battle documents, <clears throat> Al-Tabri's uh, Tariq, which includes some of the Sirah, and Ibn Sa'id's uh, documents on the Sirah as well. These are the four earliest uh, uh, biographies of Muhammad within the first 300 years of Islam. Well, what happened in these battles, first, there was a call to dawah, or conversion to Islam. The calling out those who were not Muslims to become Muslims. At one time, Muhammad fought his own tribe, uh, the Quraysh, and he sent them this message before his men attacked. He said, quote, respond to our invitation for clear statements and truth, or take the blows you will get from us at the side of Al-Madhad. We will meet you there with all our warriors. So that's what Muhammad said. So basically Muhammad was saying, convert or we're going to attack you. Now, modern conceptions of dawah are usually talked about like they're apologetics or discussions about the Bible and so on. Whereas in the early uh, stories of Islam, the early history of Islam, what we're finding about the prophet and the Muslim warriors and the Ummah was that they were not sitting around talking about theological issues uh, in the same way that many apologists are and throughout the nations and on the internet. But they were these kinds of battles that says, we'll meet you with all our warriors, we'll attack you. 
Now, the Muslims later followed in Muhammad's example. One Islamic tradition talks about what the Muslims should do when they actually meet their enemies. And it says this, quote, when you meet your enemies who are polytheists, uh, those who believe in other gods, many gods, invite them to three courses of action. If they respond to any one of these, you also accept it and withhold yourself from doing them any harm. Invite them to accept Islam. If they respond to you, accept it from them and desist from fighting against them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them that they pay the jizya, or it's a humil humiliation tax uh, uh, that, that non-Muslims must pay, Jews and Christians must pay to Muslims, jizya tax. If they agree to pay it, accept it from them and hold off your hands from attacking them. And if they refuse to pay that tax, uh, that tax seek Allah's help and fight them. Sahih Muslim, book number 19, in the tradition of 4,294. So that's pretty clear from the second most authoritative compilation of Hadith outside of the Quran. Now, there were also unprovoked raiding campaigns, unprovoked attacks. And there is an example within the Islamic sources where Muslims attacked Meccan caravans. This group was traveling, was cut off without provoking Muhammad's army. And many of the caravans were attacked over the course of these raids and the riches were stolen. Some may argue that the Meccans were the first to persecute Muhammad. But the fact is that this particular attack was totally unprovoked. There were rapes of women. In uh, wartime at that time, women became part of the booty or the reward for the winning group. And after the, uh, the overthrow of the Banu Mustalik tribe at the wells of Marasi, many of the 200 captured women that were captured by the Muslims were then raped by Muhammad's men with his full consent. In the battles of Kaibar and in Hunayn, Muhammad had to tell his men what might be done with the women. And he said that the married women, not only virgins, and slave girls could be passed on to the immediate use of the Muslim conquerors. So the Muslim conquerors could take them as long as they took certain precautions against pregnancy. Many of, these, uh, of the husbands of these married women were still alive and present when the women were taken. We see examples of mass execution. This is all in the biography. If you read this book right here, this is it. It's all in this biography. You can read everything I'm quoting is from this book, The Life of Muhammad. Mass executions. In the Battle of the Trench, it was also significant amongst Muhammad's expeditions. Uh, it written uh, accounts, uh, Muhammad himself calls for the captives of the battle to be brought in batches in a trench. And in one day, with varying reports, if you look here on page 464, uh, in varying reports, it says on page 464 that six to 900 men were beheaded. Six to 900 Jewish men were beheaded. Now, his soldiers then threw these headless bodies into the trench, and the women and children were then taken and distributed to the Muslim warriors as booty. So now, when we look across the world, uh, for those of you out in Nigeria, those 
who are experiencing persecution in places like Sudan, uh, in places around the world. We're seeing in places even in Iraq and others. The beheadings that we've witnessed in Iraq, in other places, in the Muslim world, they don't seem to be as random in light of Muhammad's example. These don't seem to be crazy people. They seem to be enacting exactly what the Quran says to do to cut off the heads in Surah 47, Ayah 4. They're rationally acting, following their theology. It's good theology for the Muslim. Uh, the Muslim injunction on this view. Now, there's also forced conversions. There's examples of, for, of murders that could have been prevented had the, had the victims converted. And as I mentioned, the hundreds of the Banu Qurayza, the Jews that were beheaded, they could have been spared at the Battle of the Trench if they had actually converted. There was a, a spy that was captured at the Maras expedition. Muhammad offered this man Islam, but he refused. And Muhammad told him, uh, the companion Umar, to cut off his head, which he did. Another sp uh, spy was captured at Kaibar, and Muhammad offered him Islam as well, mentioning that if at the third time of asking he did not accept, he would be hanged. This spy chose to accept, and as a result, he lived. And as, as a result of all these kinds of actions, uh, uh, Muhammad's biography reports that numbers of Jews pretended to have embraced Islam, and they adopted it in order to escape uh, being, being killed. So we see examples of forced conversions today, particularly in northern and central Africa, where Muslim armies attack Christian villages, sometimes in Asia as well. So these battles, in any case, continue on, and in these cities within Arabia, Mecca, Medina, and Hunain, the battles continue against other tribes in Arabia to intimidate them. The battles continue against the Jewish tribes who oppose them. Amazingly, Muhammad did not die in battle. He died of an illness in uh, 632 AD in the city of Medina where his family was. He left behind 11 widows and an Egyptian concubine, uh, Miriam, and though traditions vary in this, the order of his marriages are as follows. Number one, Khadijah. Number two was Sauda. Three was Aisha. That was the six to nine-year-old he married. Four was Hafsa. That was the, uh, uh, he had uh, Zayed to um, actually divorce um, Zainab, uh, who was uh, the wife of an adopted son, had her divorced, and then Muhammad married her. Um, six is Sal uh, Salama. Seven was Zainab bin Jash. Eight was Jeoria. Nine was Humhabiba. Ten was Safiya. Eleven was Maimuna. Twelve was Mary the Copt. Uh, there were four daughters that survived Muhammad, but there were no sons to carry on his legacy of his father. And, but Muhammad had many companions who continued in the way of Islam, but Muhammad failed uh, at attempts to send expeditions up to the Roman borders of Arabia but his uh, companions continued his mission beyond Arabia. And this was the beginning of the Muslim conquest of the Middle East. When you look at Imam al-Waqidi, who was writing in the early uh, 9th century, 830 or around there, Imam al-Waqidi, it's another book of about 900 pages, in his book, The Conquest of Syria, says that when Rasulullah was uh, dying, 
uh, he, that Abu Bakr uh, says that he, Muhammad, had commissioned Abu Bakr to go up and to conquer Syria. So the whole conquest of the uh, west or the eastern church into northern Africa and into the Middle East and so on, up into Syria where they first attacked Jerusalem, certainly all those countries, uh, that all happened at the request of Muhammad. And so these battles continue. They continued up into Syria. As I mentioned before, there was uh, some uh, 333,000 Christians and others that were killed within just four years after the time of Muhammad's death by the Muslim soldiers. Within 10 years, one million total are recounted within Al-Tabari and within uh, Imam Waqidi's annals or within the history books. So it's an incredible amount of violence that's happening uh, up into that early period of the seventh century. Many Christians have forgotten that Syria and North Africa were once the very heartland, the very center of the Christian world. But during those, that first invasion from 632 to 732, they all were overrun. The Muslims conquered and conquested. They all came under Arab control. They were taken by slave soldiers with Arabs who went on horses and began to quickly conquer these nations as they swept the entire Middle East into North Africa. The 57 Muslim nations that exist today, it was this beginning of the spread all the way, extending the Islamic uh, Ummah throughout the world. But five great Christian capitals were lost in the Islamic conquest. Uh, Antioch, Carthage, uh, Damascus, all of these huge uh, Christian capitals at that time were lost to the Muslims. Uh, not much time has been passed since Islam, uh, Europe was in danger of being overrun by Islam. Uh, in 1453, Constantinople, the Christian city, was captured by the Ottomans, and later in 1529 and 1683, the Turks stood close to the gates of Vienna. Muslim armies swept into Western Europe and stood no more than 200 kilometers south of Paris, near Geneva. If Charles Martel had not stood firm at the Battle of Tours, Europeans would likely all be Muslims today. One scholar observed that Islam has always preached war. Its founder and its heroes were warriors. The sword is the key to heaven and hell, Muhammad told his followers. Another scholar, a missionary uh, scholar, says that what makes Islam unique is that it institutionalized and even blessed this propensity to violence in the form of jihad. Violent acts committed in the name of Allah, it was Muhammad who incorporated it as a religious duty in Islam. In order to be a consistent Muslim, one should be a militant one, and that is the nature of Islam. So let's look now at uh, some modern consequences and modern trends of Muhammad's example in life. Since Muhammad was a man who propagated a tremendous amount of violence, it's no surprise that the Muslim faithful, the radical Muslims are so-called in the last hundred years, would, uh, really in the last 30 years, uh, would follow in the same footsteps. Today in the country of Pakistan, there are nearly three million students studying and have studied in the country's many thousand of Islamic schools, the madrasas, all of whom desire to follow Muhammad's example, a third of these religious schools provide military training. Osama bin Laden, for example, and his organization Al-Qaeda has trained over uh, 25 to 50,000 fighters since 1987. 
uh, now deceased, uh, he's, he's no longer doing training, but you might remember others like the Mujahideen, that they are that, that terrorist organization which was bombing Israel from the borders of Lebanon from 1984 to 1987. The Pakistani terrorists, the organization, uh, ISI, training over 80,000 of these Mujahideen, these warrior fighters. Writings by modern-day Muslim radicals like uh, Osama bin Laden greatly influenced these young Muslim recruits to come and train in these uh, camps. And uh, the Islamic teachings of Muhammad greatly influenced uh, Osama bin Laden. It's been written that in our generation, most of the terrorism in the contemporary world has taken place in the Muslim world, or it's launched from Islamist groups against people of other creeds and nationalities. All beliefs have consequences. The violent history of Muhammad and Islam provide the ideological foundation for the violence of radical Muslims today. Listen to what some of the great radical Muslim recruits of this generation have communicated to their faithful followers. Abdul Azam played an important historical role as a mentor of contemporary jihadism. Uh, he was Osama bin Laden's mentor, and he was his university professor in Saudi Arabia. He had been a strong advocate of militant global jihad. He said, jihad, he wrote, and the rifle alone, no negotiations, no conferences, no dialogues. Jihad will remain an individual obligation for every Muslim until all other lands that were Muslim are returned to us so that Islam will reign again. Before us lie Palestine, Lebanon, Chad, Eritrea, Somalia, and the Philippines, end quote. So it's clear how modern Muslim theologians are interpreting uh, their faith today and how they should apply it. In a manual published by Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization founded by Osama bin Laden, they write about the confrontation non, uh, uh, with non-Islamic governments. This is what the manual says, quote, the confrontation that we're calling for with the apostate regimes does not know the Socratic debates, Plat uh, uh, Platonic ideals, nor Aristotelian diplomacy, but it knows the dialogue of bullets, the ideals of assassination, bombing and destruction, and the diplomacy of the cannon and the machine gun. Islamic governments have never and will never be established through peaceful solutions and cooperative councils. They're established as they always have been by pen and by gun, by word and by bullet, by tongue and by teeth. Ahmadinejad, uh, the Iranian president, has also made some very strong statements. Uh, now the majority, the, when, you go to, when, you, when you talk to the Iranians, the, the Iranians themselves, the Muslims are, uh, are in, in general, tend to be very peaceful people. Uh, they uh, tend to be nominal in their faith. But Ahmadinejad's comments are not. He has made statements that Israel must be wiped off the map. And on May 8, 2006, the Iranian president sent a letter to President Bush calling the United States to return to monotheism. And he was, in essence, inviting President Bush to become a Muslim. Many in the media saw this as the opening of diplomatic relations between the United States and Iran. Some thought it was a gesture of goodwill. But those familiar with Islamic history saw that Ahmadinejad's letter was really an invitation to convert to Islam. Before Muhammad would go into these battles with opposing tribes or people, he required that they first be offered the opportunity 
to convert to Islam. And so it was possible that this letter was actually some kind of a prelude to a, a, an Iranian or, or an Islamic jihad against the United States. Now, nothing has happened in the recent years in order to suggest that that actually was to occur, but he was inviting President Bush to become a Muslim. And so it's, it's interesting to see how the, it, the beginnings of Muslim uh, leaders are beginning to in, invite the Western uh, leaders into Islam. So we can see how Muhammad's teaching and violence have influenced Islamic leaders, but they also influence common individuals. Perhaps the most radical Muslims are the suicide bombers. At times, uh, we hear uh, nightly reports of young men strapping bombs on their body, walking through discotheques and weddings uh, with the sole intention of blowing themselves up. Or in Iraq, we learn of suicide bombers uh, driving cars into crowds of people and detonating the vehicles in order to amass the greatest collateral damage. Are all these people insane, or are they actually rational actors? Well, our understanding uh, starts with the concept of martyrdom in Islam. And if you read Dr. David Cook's book, Martyrdom in Islam, Cambridge Press, uh, it's, it's really uh, one of the, the uh, seminal works on, that, on this subject. But according to Orthodox Islam, fighting is not only incumbent upon the believer, but there's also a developed theology and veneration of martyrdom. But this is not martyrdom like how the Bible teaches, standing for your faith even if people kill you, Rather, it's dying while attempting to kill others in your jihad. We saw this over and over again in the short biography of Muhammad's life that we just went through. And as followers, we're willing to engage in battle after battle in order to kill people and to die over and over again. So what is the motivation to martyr to die in battle? Because in Islam, martyrdom is, is the only sure way a Muslim can have salvation and actually enter paradise. Entrance into heaven or paradise is not assured for a Muslim, except if he dies in this jihad or he dies in this martyrdom. So the motivation is all there. On the uh, day of judgment, uh, Allah will weigh in one's good deeds and his bad deeds on a set of scales. So we can read about this in Surah 23, Ayah 102 to 103 and 101, six, verses 6 through 11. One's destiny depends on which side of the scale is heavier but the final decision is left to Allah and his will alone. However, according to Muslims, Muhammad taught in chapter 47, ayah 4 through 6 of the Quran that Muslim warriors are exempt from the day of judgment and they gain immediate entrance into paradise with all the virgins, the 70 some odd virgins that are given to them. They're killed during this jihad. So there's an ongoing debate within the Islamic community as to whether uh, suicide for the sake of jihad is permissible and acceptable in the modern day as martyrdom. However, those who do kill themselves for their faith have been clearly taught to do so by their leaders, and they go, so, they go out and, and do so in that cause. For example, Hamas and the Palestinian terrorist group has commissioned many suicide bombers uh, into civilian areas of Israel. One of Hamas's leaders said that, quote, our love for death is greater than our love for life. Also, after the, the bombing of the U.S. battalion uh, headquarters in Lebanon, uh, Sheikh uh, Mohammed Yazbek said this, quote, Let America, Israel, and the whole world know that we have a lust for martyrdom, and our motto is being translated into reality. Even Muslim children believe 
in this form of martyrdom. It's been reported that some 36% of 12-year-old boys in Gaza, uh, an Arab settlement in Israel, believe that the best thing in life is to die as a martyr. So where do these children actually learn about martyrdom? Well, some of these actually go to what are called paradise summer camps. A television show from Britain shows an Islamic jihad-run summer camp. And at this camp, young Palestinian boys were shown pictures of suicide bombers and were given military training. One camp counselor shared with a BBC reporter that, quote, we're teaching the children that suicide bombing is the only thing that makes the Israeli people very frightened. Furthermore, we're teaching them that we have the right to do it. We're teaching them that after the suicide attacks, the man who makes it, uh, makes it goes to the highest state of paradise. So the motivation to commit suicide or martyr oneself is not, is, is not only spiritually motivated, there is a, also a, a carnal uh, reason for doing it, a carnal motivation for the jihadists being willing to martyr. According to the Quran, the martyr who dies of jihad will immediately enter paradise. There in heaven they will receive these huris or these beautiful large-eyed uh, perpetual virgins. Uh, when you read the Muslim accounts, uh, they will uh, talk about being greeted at the explosion by two blonde win women that meet them there as soon as they're blown up. Uh, their blood smells like musk. You know, all of these kind of martyologies that are talks about uh, that Muslims read and envision what it could possibly be like. <laughs> also, the martyrs will walk amongst rivers of wine, be dressed in silk gowns, and seated on majestic thrones. A martyr's paradise apparently so overwhelming they would be willing to return to the earth and die again and die again and die again just to be ushered into the paradise to experience its initial majesty. Strangely, what Muslims are allowed to do in paradise is forbidden for them here on the earth. Muslims are not to have multiple sexual partners outside of marriage or even to taste wine, uh, yet their heaven beholds all that is sinful for them here on the earth. It's a very different heaven than ours, where there, it isn't so much a carnal pleasures that await us, a fictional carnal pleasures that await them. Rather, our heaven beholds a God who is there, who walks and talks in the garden, who loves us and meets us, who sent a son to die for us so that we might be with him forever and is eager to see us when we enter into that place. Many of these suicide bombers leave behind family members and even parents who rejoice with pride in the son's actions. I've seen uh, videos of mothers whose sons commit suicide bombings and she's rejoicing at how proud her uh, her, uh, she is of her son, holding his picture in her arms and approving of his violent acts. Furthermore, these families are given financial grants by Muslim terrorist organizations as a reward for this, uh, their son or husband dying in so-called sacrifice. The Palestinian Authority in Israel signed a law that supports the families of suicide bombers. So perhaps you can see how a young man from a poor family in a war-torn area would be willing to martyr himself for the hope of what awaits him on the other side of the explosion. Also, he would know that his family would be financially cared for in the aftermath. So truly the individual or community that participates in these actions finds itself between two wonderful outcomes, either victory in battle or martyrdom in paradise. 
Now remember that we're not talking about the majority of nominal Muslim believers who may even be your neighbors um, and people that you know. But we are talking about those Muslims who are radical in their Islamic faith and, who, uh, and those who revert to terror to fulfill a religious obligation. These Muslim radicals constitute about 15% of the total Muslim population worldwide, which equals 300 million people or the entire population of the United States transnationally. So it's a significant group. So as we can see, Muhammad's life, his influence and teachings have great consequences. And we're seeing those consequences in the world today. Not only in the violence of the 1.6, uh, in the violence, but also 1.6 billion Muslims who do not know Jesus Christ as the Lord, Lord and Savior. And uh, I want to conclude with this thought. Muhammad fought to establish a kingdom on earth. The radical Muslims today are carrying on that mission. But as Christians, we too have a kingdom we need to fight for. However, our kingdom is not of this earth like, uh, like in Islam. But our, our kingdom is the kingdom that's in heaven. We know that we're just travelers, we're sojourners here, we're pitching tents. We're not trying to establish our kingdom here and take over in that sense. We're trying to influence the hearts of men and women that they might come to know him and come to salvation in him. So we fight for the hearts of men that they too will join us in the kingdom of heaven one day. We love them and show the love of, uh, of God that, that God showed to us. Also like the Muslims, we too follow the example of a leader. However, we do not follow a leader who kills for his religion. That would be totally outside of what Jesus taught us to do. We are taught to follow Christ who died for his followers and therefore we go to lay our lives down for people that, yes, they may persecute us or they may kill us, but we lay our lives down for them. He became death for us so that we may live for him in eternity and with him. And let's uh, finish this up with prayer and thank the Lord that we have such a great Savior. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, that we might follow him and live for him. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead and guide us as you said you'd be with us. You said that all who wish to live godly lives in Christ would suffer, so we don't expect anything less in this life to fulfill your mission as the fuel and means to get it done. The love of God going forth to the Muslim world. We thank you for this, and we thank you that perfect love drives out fear. And so therefore, when the Quran says to strike fear in the heart of the infidel, we know that perfect love is what causes our hearts to go bold and towards the Muslim world and to preach the gospel so that so many could come in. We thank you for this, we pray. Save the Muslim world. Reach out to them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.